Two weeks ago we began our study in the book of Revelation, so let me ask you to turn there this morning. Revelation chapter 1. We will look at verses 4 through 8 this morning. Do you ever feel like your life is stuck on the spin cycle? You're stuck in the rat race of life. You go to work, you try to take a stand for Christ, and and you try to work with integrity and honesty, and you receive opposition, perhaps even from a boss who wants you to lie or cheat in order to get ahead with your clients. The spin cycle continues when you come home, and even if you have a believing family, you work hard to discipline yourself and them, but it feels as if you receive opposition there too, either from inside or outside. You try to put God at the center of everything that you do, but there seems to be opposition at every turn. You perhaps spend time with close and extended family and and you receive opposition there for doing what is right. You try to get ahead spiritually, but it feels like there are barriers everywhere you turn. When will this spin cycle be over? When will this struggle end? John here receives a revelation to be written down for the benefit of the churches to whom he's writing, but also to you, so that you would and they would long for the glorious appearing of our great Savior and so that you would be motivated to serve the One who has great power and glory and who will, with that power and glory, restore all that is to a right relationship to God, particularly those who believe on Him, so that you would say with John at the end of this this writing, even so, come, Lord Jesus. This is the message that John has for the churches and for us. That we would long for that day when, when all things will be restored, when God will make all things right, when we will see the Savior. Let's begin reading in chapter 1, verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come, from the seven spirits who are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to Him who loves us and received and released us from our sins by His blood. And He has made us to be a kingdom, priests to His God and Father. To Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. We're going to learn this morning that Christ is going to return with great power and glory. And that is our hope as we work through this struggle, which is this world. That Christ is returning with great power and glory. John begins with a commendation of the Savior in verse 4 by saying grace and peace to you. We see the messenger of of this revelation. It is John, 
verse 4 tells us it is Him. Later on, verse 9, He says, I, John, your brother, we saw this last time, that John is the author of this writing. The recipients of this letter is or are the seven churches. See that at the beginning of verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia Minor. We'll get to know these seven churches a little bit more as we continue our study. In chapters 2 and 3, John specifically mentions each of these seven churches. All seven of these churches are within a 50-mile area in Asia Minor. Um, but they don't include all the churches that are in Asia Minor. There were also others, Colossae and Troas, at least, that we know about. Um, it could be that these seven churches, John writes to them because perhaps they were on a postal route, and so it would be easy for this letter to be read at the one church then passed on to the next uh, along this postal route. Or perhaps he made seven copies and, made, and sent them to each of them. But it's probable that Christ chose these seven through this author John because they are representative of all churches of all time. When we study through chapters 2 and 3, you'll see that the problems and the, uh, and the positives, I guess you could say, in, in those churches uh, are seen in many of our churches even today. And so I think these seven churches are real churches, but they're also representative of the churches in our day as well. The message that John has from the Lord Jesus Christ is found in the middle of verse 4. It says, Grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come. This is a standard greeting that Paul would often give in his opening. It simply is that we should receive God's favor even though, or, or it's a desire for us to receive God's favor even though we deserve the opposite. We don't deserve grace and peace. Instead, we deserve condemnation and dissension or war between us and God because of our sin. But John says, no, grace and peace, even though we deserve the opposite. Notice the source of this grace and peace. The source in in the second part of verse 4 and then in verse 5. says, from Him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before His throne and from Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to explain more about Jesus Christ. I want to see who this is from. And the first one is from Him who is and who was and who is to come. We'll skip over that one and come back to that one. But let's look at the one in the last part of verse 4. From the seven spirits who are before the throne. What is John talking about here? The seven spirits who are before the throne. Who are these seven spirits? There are several ways to interpret this, but only one real meaning, and so let me just take you through several of these interpretations. Some would argue that these are seven ministries of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And they base that on Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, where it lists several ministries of the Spirit. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, and fear. But based on that list, there are, only, there are only six ministries listed, and they seem to be more like synonyms. All right, listen to them again. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, and fear. At least four of those are synonyms. And so it doesn't sound like the Holy Spirit has seven different ministries 
rather um, I believe that that Isaiah is talking about something else. It, he's probably just saying that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is vast and here are some of the things that he does. Others would say that the, these seven spirits here in verse 4 are referring to seven angels. And the reason they say that is because the Greek word for spirit or spirit is the word that's also translated as angel. And so that could be a legitimate translation. Um, it, it also is the same word that's used for messengers. But think about this. If this were referring to seven angels, then what is John saying? He's saying, grace and peace be given to you from the one who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven angels. It doesn't seem as if the angels would, would um, have that authority. That would make them equal with God to be able to grant grace and peace. So I don't think it's the seven angels. I don't think it's seven ministries of the Spirit. And I, I would take along with these other um, scholars that it would be referring to the Holy Spirit Himself. That the seven spirits is referring to the Holy Spirit. And there are several reasons why I think so. First of all, you can see that the translators of the New American Standard, if you're reading along in that version, they capitalize spirits don't they? Which indicates that it's a member of the Trinity, that it is God, the Spirit. They do the same thing in chapter 3, verse 1, when it talks about the seven spirits there. But it's odd for us to hear the Holy Spirit referred to in this way. We don't often think about Him, or maybe ever think about Him, as the seven spirits, do we? So some have argued that it, maybe it means the, seven, the Spirit who is over the seven churches or maybe the number seven is symbolic for perfection. So it could be saying the perfect Spirit. But I think that John is actually making to a, re- a reference to the seven spirits that are talked about in the Old Testament. Look at um, Revelation chapter 4, verse 5, and then we'll go back and look at the Old Testament reference. Here again, in Revelation chapter 4, verse 5, we see the reference to the seven spirits. It says, Out from the throne come flashes of lightning, this is the throne of God, and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So remember, when we looked at uh, the introduction to the book, Revelation I said that this book is filled with symbols. One of the symbols that we come upon very early in the book is this seven lamps. And John explains to us what these lamps are. He says the seven lamps are, see that at the end of verse 5, are the seven spirits of God. Now go back to Zechariah chapter 4 with me. Zechariah chapter 4. It's the second to last book in your Old Testament. So two books before Matthew. Zechariah chapter 4. And what I, what I believe is happening is John is referring back to this Old Testament prophet. Because this is how Zechariah refers to the Holy Spirit. He refers to Him as the seven lamps or the seven eyes. Look at chapter... Chapter 4 of Zechariah, verse 2. 
Let's start with verse verse 1 to get some context. Then the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who was awakened from his sleep. He said to me, What do you see? And I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand, all of gold with its bowl on the top of it, and its seven lamps on it with the seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on top of it. Skip down to verse 6. Then he, the angel, said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Look at verse 10. For who has despised the day of small things? But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord which range to and fro throughout the earth. Zechariah 2 is filled with symbols. And Zechariah, the, the book of Zechariah, I should say, is filled with symbols. And Zechariah, like us, is often confused. What are these things? What do they mean? And the angel uh, explains them. See, in verse 4, you see he's a little bit confused. Then I said to the angel who was speaking with me, What are these, my Lord? What are these seven lamps that you're talking about? What are these seven eyes in verse 10? The angel explains it to him in verse 6. We read over it quickly, but now notice what he, how he explains it. Verse 6, what these seven lamps are. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It's not a coincidence that John in Revelation refers to both the seven lamps in chapter 4, verse 5, and the seven eyes in chapter 5, verse 6. He does this because he's referring to the seven spirits as talked about right here in Zechariah. In the seven spirits, according to verse 6, is the Spirit, is God's Spirit, my Holy Spirit, we could say. So turn back to Revelation. John helps us by saying the seven lamps are the seven spirits, and Zechariah helps us by telling us that these seven spirits is the Holy Spirit. It's simply another way to refer to Him. Not that He has multiple personalities, simply another way to refer to Him. Seven eyes probably has to do with the fact that God is omniscient. That's why in Zechariah 4.10 it says that the Spirit is the eyes of the Lord. He is everywhere present. He's able to see all things. Nothing is hidden from His view. So, turn back to chapter 1 of Revelation, verse 4. The second person that, that grants this grace and peace, that John is calling for grace and peace to come upon them, is the Holy Spirit. Now let's go back to the first one, and that is grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come. Who is this referring to? It sounds like Jesus. And the reason I say that is because of verse 8. Look at verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. Same exact phrase. And we often think of verse 8 as referring to Jesus, so it sounds as if this is referring to Jesus. But I would suggest to you that this phrase, the one who is and who was and who is to come, is referring to God the Father. And I say that because of both the immediate context, the near context, and the larger context of Scripture. Listen to God the Father in Exodus chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. 
This is God speaking to Moses. He says, I am who I am. And he says, and he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial name to all generations. God's covenant name with the people of Israel is I am, or I am who I am. It also could be translated, I have been who I always have been, or I will be who I always will be. In our language, it's hard to nail down exactly what the name is, but our translators often put it as I am who I am in the present tense, but it really could be any of those three things. And I think the reason that God picked those specific Hebrew words is because He is all of those things. That He was, and He is, and He is to come. That's exactly what John says here in Revelation. That He was, and He is, and He is to come. So from the larger context, I would suggest that it's referring to God the Father, but I would also suggest that based on the immediate context, the near context, that it's referring to God the Father. Listen, if, if this were speaking of Jesus Christ, listen to uh, verse 4. Grace to you and peace from, we'll insert Jesus Christ, and from the Holy Spirit, then look at verse 5, and from Jesus Christ. So what would John be saying? Grace to you from Jesus Christ and from the Holy Spirit and from Jesus Christ. Now, he very well could be saying that, but that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. And so for that reason, I would suggest that John is referring to the eternal God, God the Father, that He has always existed. That's the idea of this phrase, that He has always existed, He exists now, and He always will exist. And this message that's coming to you, this message of hope, this message of grace and peace, comes to you from God the Father, and from the Holy Spirit, and from, verse 5, Jesus Christ. And now John shifts the focus and spends much of the rest of his time talking about the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. Notice the credentials of the Savior in verses 5 and 6. We see who He is in verses 5 and 6, and then we see what He has done. Uh, I'm sorry. We see who He is and what He's done in verses 5 and 6, and then we see what He demands or what we should give to Him in verse 7. Notice who He is. He's called Jesus Christ. The word Christ in the Greek language, uh, the word Christ in the English language is a translation of the Greek word that means the anointed one or the Messiah. So every time you see the word Christ in the New Testament, you won't find that word in the Old Testament because that's a Greek, uh, it's an English translation of a Greek word. Uh, in the Old Testament, you're going to find the word Messiah or anointed one or promised one. So every time you see the word Christ, or the name Christ, you could replace it with the Messiah. And this would be a helpful exercise for us, because in our subculture, Christ often comes across as a last name, doesn't it? As if Mary's last name was Christ, or Jesus' brothers and sisters' last names were Christ. But that's not it at all. It is Jesus the Christ. Now, the writers of Scripture admittedly call him Jesus Christ, but we could say Jesus the Christ or Jesus the Messiah. It's not his last name. 
but rather it's a title. And this title suggests that, that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy which said that one would come in judgment in great power and glory. This is the one, John says. Jesus, the Christ. Notice the second way he is described in verse 5 as the faithful witness. John has been drawing from Old Testament references. We already saw Zechariah. We saw the prophets would often call him the Messiah. Here he, he, he refers to Psalm chapter 89 where the psalmist sings of wondrous magnitude of our God and then he turns to talk about the promised Messiah and how he will come through the line of David just as God had promised. And one of the ways that the psalmist in Psalm 89 describes the Messiah is as the faithful witness that the Messiah, Jesus, will be like a faithful witness in the skies. It will be for all to see. All will know. But this is the promised one when He comes in judgment. He will come to reign on David's throne and that reign as king will last forever. The third way He is described, first, Christ, second, faithful witness, third, the firstborn of the dead. This too comes from the Old Testament, Psalm chapter 89 again, where the Messiah is called God's firstborn. God's firstborn. Not in the sense that He was created or that He was not in existence before, uh, but rather firstborn in the sense of preeminence. That He is the preeminent one with regard to death. In other words, he has conquered death. He's the first to conquer death. It's not that He is supreme over God the Father, but that He is the preeminent one over death. And all who believe in Him will also be able to conquer death through Him. You can see that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14. The fourth way He's described, notice verse um, five, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. This is similar to the phrase that will come upon in chapter 19, verse 16, where he is called King of Kings. Of all the kings who exist and who have ever existed, he is the king of all of them. He is their king. Here, he is referred to as the ruler of the kings of the earth. Again, from Psalm chapter 89 where he's called the highest of the kings on the earth. And so John, piling up these titles for Jesus Christ, is saying that Jesus has dominion, has power, has authority over all the earth. He is the faithful witness in the skies. He is the, the preeminent one over death. He is the promised one, the king of kings. That's who is granting this grace and peace. But we don't see ju we don't only see who he is. We also see what he has done. The second part of verse five, and then in verse six, notice what John says in the second part of verse five: "To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood." To him who loves us. First of all, he loves us. There are five examples I'll just quickly mention for you regarding God's love for us and Christ's love for us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us. 2 Thessalonians 2.16, Jesus 
and the Father have loved us and given us eternal comfort. 1 John 4.10 In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. 1 John 4.19 We love because He first loved us. And then, of course, one that we're very familiar with, John chapter 3, verse 16. God so loved the world. In other words, God loved the world in this way by giving His Son. But look at the text here in verse 5 because it's not talking about God's past love. Notice, it's present tense. To Him who loves us. It's not something that He just did one time in the past. And just keep looking back to that. The Jesus whom we serve continually loves us. He loves you. So don't despair, believer. Because as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing. Not height, nor depth, not life, not death, not angels, not principalities, not things present, not things to come. Not any created thing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. It is a continual, ongoing, pursuing type of love. Continually comes after you and shows His love to you. Have you not experienced that in your life? Have you not seen that in your life recently? God's continual love. And this is John's message of hope. Grace and peace to you from God the Father, God the Spirit, and Jesus Christ who loves you. And notice what He did. He released you or released us from our sins by His blood at the end of verse 5. shows us as a, uh, as a slave to sin, as if sin is our slave master. That's the way it was before Christ saved us. But now we're freed from the bondage of that sin. And notice that is a past tense, that He released us. It's done. You may still feel as if you're in bondage, but you're not. If you have trusted in Christ for your salvation in Him alone, then you are not in bondage to sin anymore. It's a past act. He has released you from that. Sin is no longer your slave master. Now you have the freedom to obey Christ, which you could not do before. The freedom that you enjoy now as a believer was purchased for you by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what John says here. He released you from sin. How? By His blood. Jesus poured Himself out for you so that you could be released from the bondage of sin. You see that act of love and how can you question His ongoing love for you now? But He has not only shown His love to us by dying for us, He has also, verse made us a kingdom and priests to His God and Father. Let's think first of all about Christ making us priests. This is a very special office that God, that, that God has allowed us to be a part of. That we are priests. We are individual believer priests. In the Old Testament, whose family was the only who could be priests? could be a priest. Whose family? Aaron's family, right? But Jesus has begun a new priestly line. And according to 
uh, what we understand from Hebrews, it's according to the order of Melchizedek, who was not a member of Aaron's line. Instead, he was of a special priestly line. He was chosen by God. And if we were made priests according to the order of Aaron, or according to uh, the order of the law at that time, what is the only way we could become a priest? We had to be a part of whose family? You had to be part of Aaron's family, right? But Jesus broke that mold by becoming a chosen priest. He made access to God for us. What Israel didn't recognize at that time was that there was another way that a person could become a priest. How did Aaron become a priest? He was chosen, right? So even Aaron was chosen. He, he wasn't, according to his own line, uh, he had to be chosen by God. God could have chosen any of his children to begin that line, but instead he chose Aaron. In the same way, he chose Melchizedek. In the same way, he chose you to be a priest. And so now you can have direct access to God. You don't have to come through any other human. You don't have to come through a priest or you don't have to go through a temple or a synagogue. You can go directly to God through Jesus Christ. You are an individual priest. And that's what John rebels over here in verse 6, that God has made you to be a kingdom and priest to God the Father. So although you may feel defeated at times, remember the position that you have in Christ. Remember the great heights to which you can ascend through Jesus Christ, something that was unheard of in human history. In fact, uh, at least after the time of Adam and Eve. In fact, think about the priests of that day. They could only meet with God in the Holy of Holies one time per year. And it could only be the priests that would do it and they had to bring a sacrifice in order to do it. Now you can go directly to God because of what Jesus Christ has done. That's why I say, think of the great heights to which you can ascend because of what Jesus has done. He has made you a part of royalty. That's the idea of the kingdom there. That He has made you a member of His future kingdom. So you have direct access God through Jesus Christ for both prayer and worship. You don't have to confess your sin to me. You confess it directly to God. And if that's what Christ has done for you, these things that we've looked at, that He's loved you, He's released you from sin, He's made you to be a kingdom and priest to God the Father, then what ought your response to be? Well, verse 6 tells us at the end. This is the response that John says we should have. To Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is what Christ Christ deserves as a result of who He is and what He has done. He deserves praise and glory forever. There's never a pause in time when Christ does not receive or deserve the glory that He gets. There will never be a a brief hiatus or a vacation when Christ will not have dominion over all things. Even now, He has reign over all. But He's allowed sin to...
come into our world and for Satan to have a measure of control until he returns. And so what John is saying is the natural response that we should have to the grace and peace that are granted to us from God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ is that we should praise God. We should worship Him. We should give honor to Him. Acknowledge Him for who He is and what He has done. So we see who Christ is, what He has done, what He demands or what He deserves. And now verse 7 we see this coming, what He will do, the coming of the Savior. Verse 7. He will come back to this earth. Behold, verse 7, He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. So it is to be. Amen. He is going to return to this earth. If you were paying attention when Dr. Dawson was here uh, for four weeks on Wednesday night, you would recognize that this reference here in verse 7 is a reference that he made several times. That Dr. Dawson was speaking about this very phrase. Notice it's in all capital letters, so that means that it comes from an Old Testament reference And we know that reference comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. You can see that in the margin of your Bible. uh, Or if you remember from Dr. Dawson, when he talked about this time when the Ancient of Days, God the Father, would give the keys of the kingdom to the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. And this would come after He came in the clouds, or when He came in the clouds. The Son of Man will come in all of His glory. This is probably similar to how God manifested Himself in the Old Testament in the wilderness in a glory cloud or the pillar of fire. Christ will come at this time in all of His glory, unveiled, even greater than the time when He went up on the Mount of Transfiguration and showed them a measure of His glory. Remember, their their faces shone bright like the sun and their garments were as white as pearl. Well, this glory will be even greater. That was only a small picture of Christ's glory. But at that time, when He comes back, it will be clear. He will come in great glory. And when He comes in this way, notice what happens. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him. Even the ones, even those who pierced Him. Now, we know the ones who pierced Him were at least the ones that were responsible, were the Jews. And they certainly will be numbered among those who see Him. But I think John is referring to more than just the Jews. I think he's talking about everyone because Matthew chapter 24, verse 30 says, And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with great power and glory. He's saying all the tribes of the earth will see this king coming. That's what it says in the last part of verse 7. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. It won't just be a select few. It will be everyone. And when they mourn over him, you see that at the end of verse 7, they will mourn over him. It won't be a mourning of grief. Oh, I really feel bad that I treated Christ this way or that my ancestor treated Christ or that I didn't receive Christ or I didn't believe the Gospel or I didn't repent of my sins. Rather, it will be a mourning because of fear of judgment. I don't have time to turn 
to chapter 6, verse 16, but at that time, Babylon is falling and the people are, are mourning over Babylon falling. It's not a mourning as if uh, they're sorry for what has happened. They're, they're, they're sorry that they're no longer able to continue in their sin. And that will be the sense of this morning when they see the Son of Man come in glory. These ones who have pierced Him, the ones who have rejected Him. It will be a morning realizing that they will no longer be able to do what their flesh wants to do. They will have to respond to this Master. And for them, it will be judgment. The return of Christ for unbelievers will be like the message of the Gospel that you give to them today. It will be an aroma of death to those who are perishing and an aroma of life to those who are being saved. Those who are rebelling against Christ, those who are unclothed with spiritual works will not see the return of Christ as a great hope. As if when Christ comes, they say, oh, finally all the answers to this world will be solved. No, they will continue in their rebellion against Him when He comes. In fact, they will gather up their armies against Him and those whom He brings from heaven so that they can fight against Him hoping to win. See, they continue in their rebellion and the only remorse they feel is the sense that they no longer will be able to sin in an unhindered way like they had been for the previous seven years, the time of tribulation when the Spirit is removed. And so John adds after this phrase, because of the coming of the Savior, he says this, so it is to be, amen. So it is to be, it's basically a translation for amen. So he basically says, amen and amen. May the Lord Jesus come. The Lord Jesus is coming with great power and glory and He will have rule over all the earth. And John says, amen and amen. And if you feel the struggle in your life, then you should say the same thing. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Well, John concludes this section, verse 8, with a confirmation of the Savior. Let's read this verse again. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and Omega, as you probably know, is the last letter. So it would be like saying, I am A and I am Z, or I am the first and I am the last. I am God over all. Who is this speaking here? We often believe that it's referring to Jesus Christ. Our first impression is that because at least four reasons. Number one, we think that this is Jesus Christ because if you have a red letter edition of your Bible, then you have this in red letters. As if and which which indicates that Jesus Christ is speaking according to these to this translation. The context the second reason we think that this is Christ is because the context seems to be about the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And we're talking about Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. And then he continues by saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega. The third reason is because in chapter 22, verse 13, the very last chapter of Revelation, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. So it would make sense that he would say it here as well. 
And the fourth reason is found in chapter 1, verse 17. Look there with me. When I saw Him... Okay, this is John speaking. When I saw Him, Christ... We can see that from the context in verses 12-16. through 16. When I saw Christ, I fell at His feet like a dead man, and He placed His right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. In other words, I am the beginning and the end. I am the Alpha and the Omega. That would make sense. So for those four reasons, at least those four reasons, we think that verse 8 refers to Jesus Christ. But I think we need to look at this verse a little bit more carefully. Let me give you three reasons why I believe this is referring to God the Father. First of all, notice who is speaking according to John. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. This title, the Lord God, is used 434 times in the Scriptures. In the Old Testament, this title is always referring to God the Father. That He is the Lord God. It's used seven other times in the book of Revelation. And there it refers to God the Father. In fact, turn to chapter 21. Chapter 21, verse 22. This is perhaps the best proof in this book for the Lord God being God the Father. Chapter 21, verse 22. John says, I saw no temple in it, that is the new heavens and new earth, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. It wouldn't make sense for John to say, I saw no temple in it for Jesus Christ and the Lamb, who is Jesus Christ, they are its temple. It's talking to referring to two different persons of the Trinity. It's referring to God the Father, the Lord God the Almighty, and the Lamb, Jesus Christ, because they are its temple. So the first reason I would suggest to you that this is God the Father is because the Lord God in Scripture refers to God the Father. The second reason is because notice what he says about himself in verse 8 of chapter 1. I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come. Who did we say that was? According to verse 4, it is God the Father. Grace to you and peace from the one who is and who was and who is to come, God the Father. And then the third reason is because of who he calls himself at the end of the verse, the Almighty. We already saw in chapter 21, verse 22, that, that the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. So that's referring to God the Father. He is the Almighty. In fact, this word is used 58 times in the Scriptures and seven times in Revelation, and I believe every time it's referring to God the Father. So I would take verse 8 to be referring to God the Father rather than Jesus Christ. However, the struggle between choosing between the Father and the Son um, signifies that there is, without a doubt, a close association between the Father and the Son, and we should not be surprised by this, should we? Because the Son is the fullness of the Godhead, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. And He shares attributes with God the Father, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. So we should not be surprised if we can't decide over this God the Father or God the Son. But I believe, based on the context and on the rest of Scripture, that this is referring to God the Father. 
And so based on that interpretation, I took time to go through that because it affects the way we understand this verse in what we're talking about today and what, what's going on here in verse 8. And here, here's what John is saying, I believe. God the Father is giving confirmation of the truthfulness of this prophecy. That God the Father knows the end from the beginning. That He was sovereign over all at the beginning. And He has been sovereign over all as seen through His mighty acts. That's why He's called the Almighty. And He's not going to let go of the reins in the future. In other words, you can bank on it. The prophecy that you're about to hear over the next several weeks is going to happen. God the Father puts His stamp of approval on it. I am the Alpha and Omega. I am the first and the last. I am the one who is and who was and who is to come. I am the Almighty. What I say will happen. Let me leave you with three points of application from this passage. Number one, recognize the continual love of Christ. Recognize the continual love of Christ. I think this is an appropriate way for John to begin his letter because in the weeks ahead you are going to be shocked at the judgment of Christ and the wrath of God that's poured out on humanity who opposes Him. You are going to be shocked. So John begins before he comes to the horror of the retribution that's going to come on those who oppose God John begins by encouraging believers that you are in the love of Christ. That Christ loves you and you will not be a part of this. You will be gone, according to Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. If you can see the love that was shown for you on the cross at Golgotha, then you should be able to experience and see the love of Christ even in this judgment that you are going to be spared from this horrific judgment that will come on the earth. Recognize the continual love of Christ. Secondly, worship God for His mercy. The fact that you will be removed from these terrifying events that we're going to find out about in chapters 4 and following the fact that you're going to be removed if you've trusted Christ should be a great cause of joy and gratitude to God the Father. And that's why I say worship God for His mercy. It should motivate you to give praise to God, give honor to Christ for the glory and dominion that He has. And to serve Him with all that you have, holding nothing back. And it should also rescue or, or motivate you to rescue the perishing, those who are are, are on the, the precipice of disaster spiritually. As Jude one twenty three says, that you should rescue the perishing, snatch them from the fire. This understanding of God's mercy should motivate you to do that. Thirdly, first, recognize the continual love of Christ. Secondly, worship God for His mercy mercy. And thirdly, be filled with hope because what God says will happen. God is in control of these future events. He is the one who is and who was and who is to come. 
And so in the persecutions and the trials that you are facing right now, it may feel as if God is not in control. But what God is saying to you is that just as He has controlled the past and just as He will control the future, He is controlling your present. Don't fear in the midst of trial that He has abandoned you. Because of your relationship to Jesus Christ, He will never leave you nor forsake you. And this is the message to the seven churches. Continue on in the midst of trial. Persevere because Christ is coming. And He's going to make all things new. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father, it is sobering to think about the judgment that will come upon this earth because of its sinfulness, because of its rejection of Your Son, Jesus Christ. And it is amazing, it is utterly amazing that You would pour out Your mercy on us, that You would protect us from this future judgment, that You would spare us from it and even make us a part of the the kingdom which is to come that as believers in the church of Jesus Christ, You will make us to be uh, kings along with Your Son, that we will reign on thrones along with Him. Father, we certainly do not deserve that. We have done nothing that deserves Your favor. In fact, we deserve the exact opposite. And So this message of grace and peace to us from You, from the Son, and from the Spirit is a message of great hope for us in a world of despair. We are constantly being bombarded by, by trouble and trial. And we face opposition all around, it seems. But we're thankful that You are in control just as You were in the past and as You will be in the future. You are now. Help us to trust in You, Father. Help us to understand and believe that You are in control and that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ if we are in Christ Jesus. And I pray that You would be with anyone here who does not know Jesus Christ, who has not repented of their sin and turned in faith to Him, pray that You would work in their hearts and bring them to Christ today. Thank You for the joy that that is that, that we have in knowing that our eternal home is secure. May You help us to live like we believe that Jesus Christ is coming and we ought to be ready. Work in us today, we pray. Change our hearts to be more like our Savior's. We pray it in His name. Amen.